you have your Bible on you, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> That's where we're going to be today. But before we go there, we're going to pray together. So join me in prayer. Father, you are great. And I don't think we understand what your word means when you say and you tell us that you are great. You are great beyond our comprehension. You are glorious. You are full of power and strength. You have a will that is unshakable, a sovereign and supreme nature. You are kind, gentle, loving, and yet you hate sin and are full of wrath and justice. You are holy and righteous and good, patient with us in our sin, kind to us as we struggle, and endlessly forgiving to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we say Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it is in that freedom from condemnation and the freedom we have in Christ that we pray to you and we come to you and we ask that we would trust you and we would trust your spirit to work in and through your word now so that Jesus would look amazing. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So we're in Colossians chapter 1. We're in verses 4 through 5 today in, our, in our, our adventure through the book of Colossians. And there are three words that are at the center of this text. Those words are faith, love, and hope. Now these are not new words to you. Uh, I, I think our familiarity with these words causes us to kind of glance over them like while we just like assume, you know, we hear these words, faith, love, hope. It's like, you know, faith, oh, you got to have more faith. Uh, love, you got to love more and love better and love God and love others. And, and hope, oh, you just got to know that your future in Christ is sealed. And we just know these words there. They, they're so fundamental to our faith. They're so fundamental to our relationship with God. They're so fundamental to our Christianity. We almost glance over them as if they no longer matter. And we only really use them when they're needed. But I think we, we lose sight of the importance of faith and love and hope in our life because faith and love and hope are all products of the gospel. And, not just, and we talked about this last week. Not just the gospel that saved you in the past and then the gospel doesn't just save you in the past and then float off into the ether and it's just there when you need it to, to use it to grab it to go save somebody the gospel doesn't just save you it continues to work it nourishes you it protects you it preserves you it works endlessly continuously and constantly in your life the gospel is not just a thing of the past for christians the gospel is the sustaining work of god himself to keep you saved to grow you in christ and to protect you from sin and to preserve the purity of the gospel in the church. And the way in which the gospel does that is through your faith, your love, 
and your hope. So faith, love, and hope are products of that gospel actively working in your life. But faith and love, which we'll see this today, faith and love specifically are products of hope. So hope is the product of the gospel, and that gospel hope produces an increase in your faith and love. But what does activated gospel hope look like in your actual day-to-day experience as a Christian? That's what I really want to get to. What is, the, what is the most beautiful expression of biblical hope that is expressed through an increase in faith and love? And here's the answer. The answer is contrast. And I'm going to show that to you. What is a beautiful sunny day without a stormy night? You guys ever wake up after a big storm all night long so big that it like, you know, I don't know, picks up your trampoline, (laughs) flips it sideways, and you wake up in the middle of the night hearing a rattling on your window and you pull the shades back and realize my trampoline is now propped up against the side of my house against the, <laughs> this happened to us like a week ago, against the, our bedroom window, and it's like shaking, okay? And I'm like, well, that's crazy. And then I go out the next morning, and the trampoline is now in the shape of a C instead of being flat like it's supposed to be. And then the next day, there was another storm, and we pulled up to the house, and Dante goes, hey, Dad, should we go get the trampoline from across the street? <laughs> It was sitting right next to our neighbor's car. I'm like, so glad that didn't hit his car. But it's in the middle of the road, laying sideways. So anyways, that was a sidetrack of my point. My point was, have you ever had, you know, you wait in the middle of the night, there's these loud banging storms and you wake up the next morning and it's like sunny, but it's like beautiful. The air is cleaned by the rain. There's no dust or fog, or smog, it's just fresh, cleaner. What is the beauty of that morning without the storm? What is the beauty of the day without the night? I coach football, I coach basketball. This week, our football team, okay, so I'll just, this is not a brag, but before Thursday last week, as a football coach, for coaching for three years, I would never lost a game. I'm not saying it's me, Because, to be honest, it really has nothing to do with me. I can promise you that. But on Thursday, we lost our first game. And uh, one of the things that I think is important for kids to learn in sports is you you don't know how good it feels to win games unless you've lost games. I mean, you could go undefeated. That that feels great, but man, does it feel amazing to bounce back from a loss with a win, to overcome. Sometimes the best way to experience the best things and the most beautiful realities in life is to experience its contrast. Cancer is terrible. You ever met someone who beat it? You ever seen how much joy they have? That's a joy they couldn't have had without the cancer. What we'll see is that faith and love and hope 
show up most beautifully when seen in contrast to darkness. So we are in verse 4, Colossians 1.4, and Paul writes, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints. So let's just do some grammatical work here. Uh, what we have here is in verse 3. Uh, flip to the text. In verse 3, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then we have verse 4 that starts with a conjunction. And the conjunction is since. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. And then in verse 5, again, we have another conjunction that starts verse 5, because. So we've got two conjunctions that start verse 4 and then a conjunction that starts verse 5. So does anyone know what a conjunction does? Does anyone remember Schoolhouse Rock? <laughs> conjunction, junction, what's your function? What is its function? <laughs> Hooking up words and phrases and clauses. All right, so a conjunction. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't practice that all week. Um, <laughs> a conjunction serves the purpose of showing the relationship between two phrases or words or clauses, as the song tells us. And so we've got two clauses, or really two subordinate clauses, what they're called. These clauses submit to the original clause. The first clause is we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then there's a question, well, Why? And then verse 4 is that subordinate clause that the conjunction reveals to us. This is why. Because we heard of your faith in, the, in, in Jesus. And because we heard of the love that you have for the saints. So faith and love are essential to our Christian life. They're not unknown even to the most immature believer. Like, these are basics. The Colossians had faith in Jesus, and that faith in Jesus, if you remember back to when we, when we first, a couple weeks ago, when we started Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, and we talked about the historical context of what is going on in Colossae at the time. That there are these heretics that they call themselves Gnostics, that, that word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. These are people who are in the know. They're the spiritual elite. They're not Christians. They're heretics. They're false teachers. But they boasted of spiritual knowledge. They know everything when it comes to spirituality. And they had a lot of mystical, crazy beliefs. And they believed that all physical reality and all matter is evil. So how do they explain Jesus? They say, well, he can't be a human because if he were human, he'd be evil. So he's not a human. He can be God, but he's just this image, this ghost-like phantom that wasn't a real person. Well, now they've destroyed the true nature of Jesus Christ, which is a heresy and a false gospel. And that is, and these Gnostics were trying, basically looking down on the Colossians saying, hey, you simpletons, you silly faith-driven people, you just believe in some simple reality that Jesus is a man who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, and that's all you need to do is just believe it and you get saved. And Paul's like, yeah, exactly. It's simple. Children can believe it. In fact, that was Jesus' point when he says, if you want to be with me, you have to have faith like a child. It's that simple. 
And the Gnostics tried to make it complex and difficult and weird, to be honest. And so what Paul does is he praises them for their faith in Jesus. And that faith in, in, the, in Colossae was revealed in their endurance to suffer through that rise of false teaching of Gnosticism that was spreading throughout the churches in Asia Minor. And then the Colossians also have this love for the saints, which is you know, loving God's people. Okay, loving everybody is clear throughout scripture, right? We should love everybody. Treat everyone with love and kindness, even those, even those who persecute us. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. That's not easy to do. I mean, so, so we're to love everybody. And the expression of love for a Christian should be much easier with another believer. Loving another Christian should be a given if you're a believer. Loving another believer should be an easy activity for a Christian. But do we? I mean, honestly, think about this yourself. Do you love other people? Do you love other believers? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And you could probably come up with a bunch of examples of how you do. Yeah, I went to this guy's house and helped him do that, and I prayed for this person, and I, and you think of, and I really like that guy, and we have a good relationship. And, and you think of all these ways in which you do love people. You talk trash about them behind their back? Because that's not love. Do you complain about them when they do things you don't like? Because that's not love. I mean, we say we love people, and let me tell you, in public, we show it. But behind closed doors, where's our integrity? What does our love really look like? Because that is the true measure of your love. When a believer mistreats you, how do you respond? That is the measure of your love. Do you whine about them? Do you go tell your spouse about how mean they are and how you don't like them and how you wish they'd leave you alone? Or do you pray for them? Do you serve them? Do you give to them? Do you bless them? <laughs> Way easier said than done. Am I right? So what the Colossians were doing was loving. Loving people regardless of their race or their creed because we see that later in Colossians when Paul says there is no difference. There's no Greek, no Jew, no Scythian. It doesn't matter. We're all united in Christ and that is when love is expressed best. Unity in diversity. And that's what the Colossians are doing. And we'll get there as we get through Colossians to see that the beauty of that unity in the diversity of God's people. So all of this is pretty basic stuff, I think, for believers. Faith in Jesus, love for the church. No real Christian would deny that these are elemental aspects of Christian living and the, the, the Christian experience. But what does my faith in Jesus and my love for the church really actually look like in my own life? Now, I think in order to understand the, the role of increasing faith and love in your life today, first we need to understand biblical hope so we get to verse 5 and it says because of the hope laid up for you in heaven so again we have a conjunction junction what's your function and then the, it presents this subordinate clause so verse 4 was the answer to why does Paul thank God for the Colossians because of their faith in Jesus and their love for the church well why do they have 
faith in Jesus and love for the church because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Their hope was the engine that ran their faith and love. And as their faith and love was expressed, it was seen by the church, and Paul thanks God for it. Biblical faith, okay, biblical faith is not blind faith. It is not trusting without knowledge. Biblical faith is a belief that is based on and grounded on persuasive evidence that reveals the truth about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's going to do. But also, biblical faith is blind. It is blind in the sense that we do not see our hope. How many of you have seen Jesus face-to-face? Don't raise your hand because you haven't, okay? You have not seen Jesus face-to-face. You haven't seen your hope. You haven't seen heaven. You haven't been present with the Father. You have not, we, we haven't seen the hope. We haven't experienced uh, Psalm 1611, which is the utter and absolute joy and pleasure of the presence of God. We experience it in pieces. We experience it in a lesser way now today with his presence in us in the Holy Spirit. We lack nothing of God but we don't know that future hope yet. It is blind. But that faith in our hope is grounded in what we can see, the Bible, right? And so the Bible provides evidence of our hope in which we have faith. And that is why Paul says in Romans 8, 24 through 25, he says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? Right? Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, by definition, the word hope requires that you don't see it. Because if you see it, then it's no longer hope. Now it's a reality. So hope, in order for something to be hope, it has to be something unfulfilled or unseen. I hope my favorite team wins the championship. Fill in the blanks. Right? That's an unseen reality that you look forward to. I hope... I do this, this, or that at my job this week, whatever your job might be, fill in the blanks. It's an unknown reality that you want to see come to fruition. That is the definition of hope. So, so now hope is that, I'm sorry, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, that's eternal life in Christ, we wait for it with patience. So we cannot see our hope since we cannot see it we must have what? Faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things what? Hoped for. Hope is the train that we ride all the way to our eternal joy. And faith is our ticket on the train. But if you buy that ticket... You still are missing something. You still need something. You need to know where the train station is. You need to know which car to get onto and which stop to get off at. Meaning, having a ticket and using it, using it correctly requires knowledge. Faith requires knowledge. You have to have information in your head and that information comes from God's word. And so it is with faith. As our knowledge of God increases, so does our faith. And as our faith increases, so does our hope 
and our confidence in our eternal life in the presence of God where there is endless joy and pleasure forever. Now, hope is listed here in this text last. Okay, so Paul talks about faith and he talks about love and then he gets to hope. That's backwards. Usually Paul ends with love. Usually he says faith, hope, and love. We find this in 1 Corinthians 13, 13 where Paul says the greatest of these is love. And that's why love is always listed last because at the end of the day, love is the point. What good is faith in heaven because faith becomes a reality, right? What good is hope in heaven because hope becomes to fruition, Faith is answered. Hope is answered in our eternal presence in, with God. But what remains? Love. But Paul's not talking about the future. That's why he puts hope last. And that's why when he's talking about love, he's not talking about that love that lasts forever. He's talking about that love on the ground, that love that you experience today with other believers, that that horizontal love, not the vertical love, obviously vertical love, love with God is a priority, but he's talking about how that love with, for God and in God is expressed across the plane with other people in the church and across the world, how you love others and how that faith in God is expressed with others. And that's why hope is listed last because he's talking about in that experience of faith and, and love on the ground today in your Christian life, you have to have hope and we'll see why. And that's why hope gets the final billing. Hope gets the honors here because hope is what causes their faith and their love. And the Colossians themselves, they were pagans before they met Christ. They were pagans before the gospel was preached to them by Epaphras and Philemon. They were as we were before Christ. Okay? You wouldn't think of yourself, you wouldn't call yourself a pagan. You wouldn't say, before I met Christ, I was a pagan. But I mean, weren't we? Essentially the same. We, we were without God, right? Look at, this is who we were, and this is who the Colossians were before Christ. Ephesians 2, 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Listen to this. Having no hope and without God in the world. That is our position before faith in Christ. We were hopeless. No future, no eternity, no life, just lost in the world without God and without any hope and without anything to look forward to. But Paul tells us there in Ephesians 2 to remember that position. That's what he says, verse 12. Remember that you were that way. He wants us to remember who we were. Why? What's the point of remembering? For contrast, because then Paul gives us this reality of who we are now. That's who we were, verse 12, and now who we are, verse 13, Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is what we are to remember, that we were hopeless, but now in Christ we have hope. So that contrast makes it beautiful. Who we were, that black, dark backdrop of who we were makes the beauty of who we are come to life. The brightness and the light of the gospel is made clearer against the backdrop of who we used to be. So that is where our hope lies. 
When we see the contrast, we see the, the work of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the power of the gospel to take us from who we were to who we now are. For Christ to redeem us out of our wickedness, out of our sinfulness, out of our hatred for God. And let me tell you, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you hate God. And don't tell me you don't, because Jesus says you do in John 8. He says, Satan is your father. That is hatred for God. And James makes that clear. In James 4, he says, French, you, you, you cannot sit on the fence. I'm going to paraphrase James 4, 4. You cannot sit on the fence. You either love the world or you love God. Friendship with the world is hatred to God. Enmity with God. War with God. You cannot have it both ways. You either have Jesus as your Savior or you don't. And, and for God to take us those who hate him, his enemies, and redeem us by his love and grace that we don't deserve. I mean, there's a lot of non-Christians out there who look at Christians and think, man, those people really think they're better than me. I'm like, have you ever met a good Christian ever? Have you ever, ever talked to someone who genuinely knows the gospel? They will never tell you they're good people. They'll say, I am a sinner saved by grace. I'm not better than anyone else. Neither are you. You know that. We aren't special. We're not super smart people who just like picked up the Bible and were like, oh, good thing I'm so awesome and so smart and so spiritually in touch with myself that I realize that this gospel is for me and I should just believe it and I'm going to do it all on my own, no help from God because I just decided I'm going to love God. That's not possible. That's not possible because of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, which we read last week. That we were dead in our trespasses. We were not dying in our trespasses. We weren't in the pool of trespasses, you know, struggling to get to the surface, drowning, calling out for help. Oh, I'm dying. Somebody save me. We didn't want salvation. We were dead in our trespasses. We were at the bottom of the pool. Our lungs were filled with water and we were dead. How do dead people choose life? They can't. They need God. And that, that is the beauty of the gospel, that God saves us. That is the beauty of being a Christian, is that I am not good. I, I wasn't smart enough or good enough or wise enough or spiritually in touch with myself enough to choose the gospel. The, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So, it, the awesome reality of the gospel is that unbelievers need to know from us that this is a message for everybody and that this is a message of hope. Without Christ, you will suffer forever in an agony that is beyond your wildest comprehensions. You cannot fathom the degree of suffering that happens when you die and you don't have a Savior named Jesus Christ. And that is our biblical hope, that we know that's the consequence and we know that's not our future. So what really is biblical hope? Biblical hope is certainty, absolute certainty, a guarantee and an absolute faith and confidence in the assurance, absolute and utter and perfect assurance of our eternal placement in everlasting joy with Jesus. Biblical hope is not wishing that future event takes place, but absolute knowledge that it will take place. Now, all of this 
Faith, love, hope, and its interconnected relationship is all a product of the gospel. Because we see this at the end of verse 5. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So faith, love, and hope are not new words to believers, not at all. And whether you're a mature believer or a new believer, these truths, these three truths of the Christian life are essential and known by all Christians. And Paul acknowledges that because he says, of this, meaning faith, love, and hope, you have heard before. Meaning, you already know this. This isn't news to you. But here's what you need to realize. It's from the gospel. So Paul knows that faith, love, and hope are not new to you, but he also wants to remind us that these are gospel foundations that you already know exist in your life and are already cemented realities to your belief and understanding of the gospel. But what we know and what we do are two different things. Have you ever willingly, knowingly chose to sin, a specific sin, while thinking to yourself, God, I know you don't want me to do this. I know I'm not supposed to do this. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. And I'm a, I, 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 and you do it anyways. You ever done that? I have. <laughs> oh, it's the worst feeling. Because it really feels like you're spitting in God's face and you know you're, you shouldn't. And you feel the conviction from the Spirit and you're like, I shouldn't do this. And you're like, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. He, did, like, he, he understands and he'll forgive me. It's okay, he loves me. He, like you justify it. <laughs> we know we shouldn't, but we do it anyways. That, that's a reality in, in our Christian life too because we've got this battle for righteousness in our heart that battles against our sin our, our flesh wants to win our the spirit of christ in us wants to win and, and we know that the spirit of the spirit of christ we know that christ is already victorious but it's these daily battles that we live through the end is sealed it's done it's assured it's it, it's over the battles i mean the, the victory is ours in christ we are more than conquerors in christ jesus and so the end is known, and it's, it's done, it's guaranteed. But today we live out the process, the daily path toward that perfection. And it's hard. And we have this battle between what we know and what we do. And what I mean is that you may know that you have faith, love, and hope, but do you, and you may talk like you, you have faith, love, and hope, and we don't always increase in faith, love, and hope. And this is where Christian life comes to life. There are far too many believers who are just coasting through their faith. I see it all the time. They believe in Jesus. You know, they believed in Jesus someday in the past and, and they still know the truth and they still proclaim that truth and they say that they're Christians, but they don't grow. They don't go to church. The Bible commands us to go to church. Why? So we can Hear the word of God, fellowship with other believers, worship God corporately, pray together, build a community so we can advance and build the kingdom of God. And I've said this a thousand times from this pulpit, we are not here to build Grace Church. Because a lot of you will be surprised if Grace Church does numerically grow 
to a certain point, and you're like, and, and there'll be some of you who are like, yay, I'm so happy that we're growing. I'm going to go, good, we're going to split in half, and we're going to plant a new church. Because we're not here. I'm not promising that. I don't know. But, <laughs> but my point is we're not here to make a mega church. We're here to build the kingdom of God. We want the gospel to go out. We want Christ to be made known. We're not here to make Grace Church known. We're here to make Jesus known. And Jesus is seen in two specific ways. One, in you. How you behave and live in faith and love and hope in the community. How you live out that faith, love, and hope in the joys in life, in the wins and victories in life. And how you experience and live out and respond to the sufferings and difficulties and trials and hardships of life. That's when people will see the beauty of Jesus Christ in you. And then also how Christ is seen is in the body as a corporate entity. We are not an organization. I know far too many churches that are organizations run by businessmen that call themselves elders. That's not what the church is. The church is not an organization. The church is an organism. It is the body of Christ. We are the hands, the feet, the arms, the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the fingers. We are the parts of the body of Christ that extend into a lost world to reach the lost and also extend in to comfort our brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray with them, to learn with them, to love with them, to live with them. That is what we are as the body of Christ. So I am not interested in building a bigger organization. I am interested in seeing the body of Christ, the organism of Jesus Christ, you growing. That is my role as a shepherd. Your spiritual well-being, individually and corporately. But here's what I believe. If that growth is genuine and that happens, and we preach the word, and you hear the word, and you study the word, and you pray at home, and you lead your family well, and you love Jesus, and you fight for victories over sin, and you fight for righteousness, and you learn to hate your sin, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you read, and you study, and you learn, and you live, and you love your wife, and you love your kids, and you love your husband, and you work hard at your job, and you endure sufferings, and you fight temptation, and you get discipled by a man, or you get discipled by a woman, and you bring your hardships to those people, and you pray over it together, and you join a life group, and you do life together, and you live. If we do those things, you will grow. You will. You absolutely will. If you go to church, you will grow. I don't, I, I, I'm sorry, I just, it's just a frustration for me. I don't understand how I've met so many Christians lately who, when I meet them, they say, we don't go anywhere to church. Part of me is like, what? And then the other part of me is like, good, come to our church. <laughs> You know, I never want to, po- I'm not a poacher, I'm not, I don't want people coming to our church from other churches. You go to, you know, if someone's got their own church, I'm like, good, go to your church. I mean, it, it, like, it gets, like I said, it's not about going to church. It's not, an, it's not like you got to go to church so that God knows you're good and that you do your weekly duty. No, you need to come here for Christ. You need more Jesus. You, and, and, and if you only get Jesus at church, that's a, the opposite problem. You need him every day. You need to be in the word yourself. I mean, I want to see this church grow. And my whole point of saying that, that if you do all those things and you will grow is that if you are doing those things as an individual and with your family, you and your family will 
flourish. And if we're all doing it, we as a body will flourish. And I can't help but believe that that would make us grow numerically. So it would be a result of genuine fruit in this congregation, but it will never be my aim. I will joyfully pastor a church of 15 people for the rest of my life if 15 people are willing to love Jesus with all their heart, mind, and soul and love others with all their heart, mind, and soul. But I'm telling you, if I shepherded those 15 people for five or 10 or 15 years and there were still only 15 people, I would say, I'm starting to think you 15 people really don't love Jesus with all your heart, mind, and soul because where are the people that you saved? Where are the people that you shared the gospels? Where's the fruit of your growth? Way too many Christians coasting through their faith. My dad used to tell me that. He was like, Mark, you're such a good athlete. How come you don't do more? You're just coasting. My coaches would tell me, you have so much potential. Why don't you work harder? I was like, nah. Because <laughs> I like my sin more. I mean, that's really what I should have said, because that was the truth. I'm lazy. I don't want to. Just coasting. Was I, you know, how, how did my, let's say high school, let's say high school, how did my high school athletic career go? It was good. You know, it was all right. Was it great? Was it amazing? No. Why? Because I coasted. You're going to get to heaven and go, Jesus goes, how was your Christian life? Eh, it was, it was good. Was it great? Nah, not really. I mean, it was, you know, it was fine. I didn't really go through much hard things. It was pretty easy, you know couple difficulties here and there. My boss, oh, you know. (laughs) My wife. um, You know, other than that, it is pretty easy. You know, like, what does Jesus say about that apathetic, kind of lukewarm Christian? Does he go, oh, I'm so glad your life is easy and comfortable. I'm just so glad you're here. What does Revelation tell us Jesus does? Spits you out. Hates it. You're not hot or cold. You're not refreshing or on fire for Christ. You're just meh. That's coasting. That's not Christianity. And when, if you're coasting for years and years and years and years and years, I'd be tempted to say, I don't think that person's saved. Because Christians don't coast. They grow. And they fight. And they pray. And they read. And they ch- they're challenged. They're corrected. They, they get correction. And, they, and they're good friends to people. I had three people this week come to me in love and with patience and in gentleness and in kindness out of a deep affection for me, tell me that I can be better than what I'm doing. It was correction. These things need correction, Mark, because I love you. 
And the, the verse that came to my head when these people talked to me was the proverb that tells us that a harsh word from a friend is much sweeter, or, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, a bitter word from a friend is much sweeter than a kind word from a stranger. I need that. You need that. We need that. Stop coasting. And you know you're coasting. I shouldn't have to, I, I shouldn't have to go on to explain. You know, if you're sitting there going, am I coasting? If you even have to think about it, you probably are. There are far too many Christians who claim to love Jesus and love the church, but treat other people like Pharisees treated lepers and poor people. There's no forgiveness, no charity, no grace given, no understanding towards people and their circumstances. We just judge them according to our standards of living and we condemn them with our doctrine instead of loving them with the gentle kindness of Jesus. And there are far too many Christians without hope. All I see in Christians is endless grieving, endless grieving, 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 grieving. Woe is me, my life is hard. Complaining, and why. it's not all I see. I see a lot of Christians who aren't like that, but I do see a lot of that. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, I might see it, but I also see it in myself, and that's why it's easy for me to identify in others, because I can project that onto you, because it's really me. Grieving about our circumstances, grieving our situations, grieving over our hardships, grieving over every difficulty or bump in the road, as if that suffering was not intended by God to increase your faith, love, and hope. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, this is what he said. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep why, Paul? That, there's a conjunction right there, that you may not grieve as others do. Why do they grieve? Who have no hope. We have no reason to grieve. Why? Because we have hope. I'm not suggesting that grief should be absent from the believer's life. What I'm suggesting is that grieving without hope should be absent from the believer's life. When we grieve over every difficulty in life as if it were some overbearing burden that will ruin us and our attention and focus and energy is spent on drudging through our hardships in misery and in disappointment and in defeat that shows us that we are without hope. We're losing the battle for joy. We're giving into misery because we are not focused on our hope. And when we're not focused on hope, we don't increase in faith and in love. And faith and love dwindle as hope shrinks. Because our attention is not on the gospel. Our attention is on, woe is me and my hardships, therefore I grieve. And we think, eh, Life stinks. Life's hard. It'll all be done one day. Here's the extent of our hope. Ah, it'll all just be done one day and I'll be in heaven, so I'll just kind of get through it for now. That's not the gospel. I mean, that's, it's partially true. That, that is a reality. It will be over one day and I will finally have joy in Christ, but, but the gospel isn't just for your eternal life. The, Jesus didn't just die for your eternal life. Jesus died for your today. He died for your now. He died for your marriage. 
He died for your relationship with your kids. He died for, for you to, to prevail at work in righteousness. He died for your experience with him and with each other in faith and love and for the hope of a better future that is experienced today. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The abundance is not only eternal, it is also temporal. We were saved not just for our future hope, but so that our hope would cause us to live this life today abundantly. And an abundant Christian life is not a promise of an abundance in money. It is not a promise of an abundance of health or fame or riches or any other worldly claim. That is not the abundance that Jesus speaks of. The abundance of life for the Christian is an increased faith and love and hope. An increase in gospel-centered living. An increase of the gospel. Meaning a life of gospel abundance. That's what Jesus is talking about. I came that I may give them life and have it abundantly. We will have it in the maximum level of abundance in our eternal life in the presence of Christ, but we can have it now in the abundance of a gospel-centered life, which is best revealed. Now, here's the contrast, okay? So earlier at the beginning, I was talking about the contrast. I want you to see this now come to life. This is the contrast. That faith, love, and hope as an abundant reality of gospel living in your life is best experienced and best revealed not in your health, not in your wealth, and not in your prosperity, but in your suffering, in your hardships and pains and burdens and concerns and anxieties and stress. That is where the gospel comes to life. That is the power. That is the contrast. The beauty of the gospel is brightest against the dark backdrop of your suffering. That is the powerful and continual work of the gospel. To bring about an increase in your faith in Jesus through hardships that produce more dependence on God. That is the power Powerful and continual work of the gospel to bring about an increase in your love for each other through suffering for the gospel together with compassion for one another as we see God disciplining each other and we come to serve and lift each other up. And that is the powerful and continual work of the gospel to bring about an increase in hope through trials that remind us that these difficulties in life are not so that my life would be easy today, but so that I would be chiseled into the perfection of Jesus by a loving God who treats me like a son, and so he disciplines me for my good by chipping away at my insecurities and chipping away at my emotional instability and chipping away at my frustrations and chipping away and chiseling away my worries and my anxieties and the things that cause me stress in life. He doesn't take away the burdens. He prepares us for them. You have to suffer. You have to. 
Not just so that you would grow, but so that in your suffering, which is the dark backdrop, you would be a bright light of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that only knows darkness. Hope is not just for the future. It is for today. Hope is not just assurance of future perfection. Listen to this. Hope is not just assurance of future perfection. It is trust in God that my future perfection requires my growing pains today. Without hope, we are left on our own to figure out why we are suffering at all. But with hope, we are never left on our own and we're reminded that our pain in life is meant to transform us into the likeness of Jesus, who also suffered many pains in life. John 15, 20, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. So we are not promised joy in this life through an easy path of financial blessings, easy job, perfect spouse, good kids, physical health, or any, form of, uh, any other form of prosperity. We're not promised that. We are promised Romans 8, 17. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That is our promise suffering but that is not the whole promise verse 18 for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us what does that mean for paul when he says okay we have to suffer but i don't even think that the suffering compares to the glory that we're going to get after the suffering in christ so what is it what is the conclusion of that equation suffering plus recognition that recognition of a future glory is called hope so what do we have suffering plus hope equals what first peter 4:13 but rejoice hear that word but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. We're heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And what do we do? In sufferings plus hope, rejoice. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Joy. Joy is what hope looks like in your life. What does suffering plus hope equal in your daily, actual, on-the-ground experience as a Christian? It equals joy. This is why James said, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Yeah, easy to say, hard to do. That's why I said earlier, we might know these things, but what we know and what we do are very different. Hope assures us that no matter how hard my life is, no matter how difficult my circumstances, I get joy in Jesus. Not just in the future, but now, today, in the midst of the hardships. That is 
when you know the gospel is working in your life, when all the things that pour onto your head no longer produce self-pity or apathy or loathing or woe is me or, or, or grieving my circumstances. Oh, did you hear about my recent hardship? Wah, 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 wine, 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 complain, complain, complain. That, I'm not telling you that you should not bring your hardships to brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't come to other believers and say, here's what's going on in my life. I need prayer. But th- that's, that's, there's a big difference between like, oh, this happened, that happened, and this happened. Blah. Versus, I'm struggling. My wife and I just aren't getting along. My job's not going how I want it to. My kids just don't listen to me. I, my, my home life is just a wreck. My, my sister's got cancer. My, my brother's marriage is falling apart too. My, my mom just died. I, man, I, I need prayer. Don't you want to just wrap your arms around someone like that and just be Jesus for them? I think about hurting people like that, and I just think, it brings me to tears because I just, I feel like that's what Jesus would feel. That he would just go, I, that's got to kill you. I know that feeling. I want to wrap my arms around you. I want to pray with you. I want to support you. I want to be with you. I want to help you. That is such a fruitful, fruitful complaint. It's so much better than, Eh, my life's hard and I'm just whine, whine, whine. That's a big difference. Because this person over here who wants help, you know what they want? Joy! They want joy because it's missing and they need it and it's hard to suffer through all these difficulties in life and they're begging you to help them get joy back. Their misery is killing them and they just want to be happy. They want to be happy in life and they want to be happy in Christ. This person over here, they don't want joy. They love their misery. That's why all they do is complain. I call them Eeyores. Oh, poo, I just, my life's so terrible. Nobody, that that person doesn't want joy. They'll tell you they want their life to be happy, but when you give them solutions for happiness, they go, well, I can't do that because that's not going to work. Well, have you tried, maybe try this. Well, that's not going to work either. I'm just going to live a miserable life. And they walk off living a miserable life, and I'm just like, I don't get it. You don't want joy. Don't pretend like you do. And to be honest, I can only give you so much of my life because there are way too many people over here who genuinely desire joy in Jesus Christ. And that ought to be us. And and living a life that pursues joy in Christ is living a life of righteousness. And a life of righteousness will get you persecuted. I promise. And I promise it because Jesus promised it. And Paul promised it. The Bible promises it. You will suffer when you live for Christ. Okay, and I know when we think of the word suffering, we all make people like, oh, I'm going to be burned at a stake for living for Christ. Probably not in this lifetime. Not in America. I mean, a lot of you are probably thinking, well, America's looking pretty bad. They might be start killing Christians soon. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. They're not going to start killing Christians. Maybe they do. I don't know. I, that's the thing. I don't know. Who knows? 
I doubt it in America. I mean, we might, you know, there, but my point is that suffering varies level to level. There are a lot of degrees of suffering, okay? Your broken marriage is suffering. That's a form of suffering. Some of it's self-inflicted, some of it's just on you. You want to live a life of righteousness in Christ, you will suffer. I want you to live a life of righteousness in Jesus. I want you to suffer. I don't want you to suffer, but I want you to suffer. I don't want you to be in suffering, but I want you to live in righteousness, and I know it's going to make life a little more difficult for you, maybe a lot more difficult for you. And what I know is that if you're, if you're suffering and going through hardships and trials and difficulties because of righteousness in Christ, that you're going to be the kind of person who's over here and goes, I am having a hard time living for Jesus right now, and, and I feel like either God's working on me or Satan's attacking me, and I'm going to say it's both. Let's get you some joy. Where does the joy come from? Turning our attention and our focus back on the gospel. Sam Storm said, Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It is the presence of God. That is how we get joy in our suffering. Because Psalm 1611 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is is joy. Becoming dependent on God in our hardships. And as we become dependent on God, we are drawn into his presence where we find endless pleasure and joy in him. So I'm going to leave you with one question and one question only. Are you living an abundant life of joy in Jesus when it gets hard? Or are you the whiny, complainy Christian? That will tell you about the condition of your hope. Let's pray. You are precious to us, Jesus. Give us hope that is gospel hope so that we can, like diamonds that are set against a black felt background we want you to shine in the midst of our hard dark suffering give us that gospel hope we pray this in jesus name and all god's people said